James Fallis. Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. So, uh, Graham, it's a great pleasure to be able to join you again, discuss these issues of mutual interest. And I may even mention some later on that I know go into your field of academic background and expertise to get your guidance on a project I'm considering. Okay, sounds sounds good. I'm I'm ready. So let, I, I thought I might start and uh, pardon if this is uh, if this is too elementary for you or for anyone. But one one way to think of sort of American politics, this is building on the work of Hofstetter, but it's you know pretty common work is to think of these these sort of eras of these dominant paradigms. And if we want to, I mean, we can argue about what happens between Lincoln and FDR. There's sort of a struggle between progressivism and what might, what was called sometimes liberalism or laissez-faire economics. And then we get, you know, the sort of last gasp of that is is Hoover uh, and the 20s. And then we get this new 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 thing it's called the new deal right or you can call it social democracy and this era the analysis goes even the presidents and the presidential modes from outside of the dominant party um, are working within that framework so you have lbj um, expanding the new deal with civil rights and medicare and medicaid but you have eisenhower expanding the um you know, the sort of administrative regulatory state. And then especially, this is where it gets tricky, the paranoid megalomaniac evil monster known as Richard Nixon, in fact, creates the EPA and in many ways is within this FDR framework. Um, and I'm going to interrupt your, yes, your flow of thought for a moment with saying there's something about Nixon that I recall among the zillion other uh, sort of nightmarish aspects of Nick, Nixon. But there was a, a Daniel Patrick Moynihan, of, of course, um, well known to your listeners, sort of began his public policy career as an aide, White House aide to, to Richard Nixon and talked Nixon into proposing a guaranteed annual income, yes. sort of a, a negative income tax, which nobody, people sort of know. Well, Donald Trump discovered that he's a Republican. Most people know that Nixon uh, started the EPA or some people who follow politics. It's now basically forgotten that he was also try trying to have this ambitious, uh, you know, uh, welfare program. Okay, good. Yes, um, that, I, I, I've come across references to that, but I hadn't thought of how, you know, how perfectly this this fits into this uh, this framework. Okay, well, then, then we've got the problem, which is that although people often date the beginning of what is sometimes called neoliberalism, and we'll, we'll have to unpack this term as we go along with the with the administration of Ronald Reagan there's uh, there's other people who put the beginning of neoliberalism in the american context with the administration of jimmy carter and then the other person who is really associated with the word neoliberalism in america is charlie peters um, famous journalist both of these men served as your mentor so i guess my first question is like why, why did you guys destroy social democracy, Jim, is, what, is, the, is the rude way of putting it. But I guess I'm trying to throw us back into this moment before we move forward, because there was obviously energy from the left. Brad DeLong has talked about this. There was some neoliberal energy on the left. Now neoliberal is an epithet that means the worst form of right-wing economics and social policies as someone who was born in the 80s, I cannot get myself back into the place really where neoliberal might have meant something else, which is which is why I've asked you here to help me. Uh, well, well, thank you. And on the uh, on the question of 
why did person X destroy wonderful thing, wonderful thing Y or Z? You can, for example, as the question is, Elon Musk now destroying Twitter out of <laughs> purposefulness or out of ignorance? You, you don't know. Um, when the George W. Bush administration made the entirely reckless invasion to dis, uh, decision to invade Iraq, was that stupidity? Uh, was it a lack of tragic imagination? Was it, um, uh, you know, was it doctrine? So there are many complex explanations for all these things. In term, in the question of the neoliberals, I think the two people you mentioned, both of whom, as you and I speak, are in hospice care in their late 90s, but both still around. Jimmy Carter, I heard a few days ago, had been walking around the streets of Plains. Uh, Charlie Peters, who is uh, 96, is, is um, I, I talked with him only a week ago or so. I think they would both say that a very important distinction is involves the term itself, that neoliberalism, as 99% of people understand it, is something that came, you know, just just um, from entirely different sources. And we'll get into some of the, the reasons why Carter and Charlie Peters in different ways tried to defend the distinction. But we have, it would be as if um, you had some new foreign policy, uh, you know, plan for, for dealings with Brazil or whatever, and you decided to call it the new Cold War, or you decided <laughs> to call it, you know, McCarthyism. It's just a, a label that has become, um, so that they're two very different phenomena. I would describe the atmosphere in which uh, Charlie Peters starting his magazine in the late 1960s, and it's still running now, and Jimmy Carter starting his political career at the same time in the 1960s, Georgia. They each were coming into a sort of maturing stage of a predominant political paradigm that their, uh, you know, their, their political ideas and economic ideas start out where there's experimentation and people are starry-eyed, they're trying to do lots of different things. After a while, they they mature, and rot can set into them uh, many times. And I think both uh, Jimmy Carter and Charlie Peters, in their parallel ways, and I'll tell you in a minute about a strange parallel connection. They were trying to say we have we have a a situation basically set up by FDR. You know, this this we're in sort of the late New Deal period. It was thirty plus years later, and some of its excesses, and some of its weak points, and some of its um, flab, and some of these other things are are coming up. And so the challenge is to find a way to maintain and pursue the goals, which in case of in the case of both of these people involved, classically. Uh, small P progressive or small L liberal goals of more opportunity, more equity, less polarization, et cetera, but to be turn a critical eye to the means of doing that. And I think the most controversial, it's worth sort of spending a minute to talk about the different paths each of these men took because uh, it led to, to where they were. Jimmy Carter, as is famously known, grew up on a peanut farm in Georgia. Uh, he went off to the Naval Academy. He was a submarine officer for a while. For family reasons, he came back uh, and had to, to run the peanut farm when his father was was not able to do that. And he got into politics. His his first entry in politics uh, when he was a uh, he was a Georgia state senator, and then he was um, his original campaign for governor. People thought he was sort of race baiting. He was running against a a more uh, somebody who was seen as a more progressive um, Democrat on racial issues in Georgia. And Jimmy Carter was sort of attacking him from the right. After that, when, when Carter ran again uh, to be governor of Georgia in the um, 
in the early 70s and, of course, running for his presidential campaign in 76. He was in in cultural ways a fascinating amalgam of what we think of as left and right. And the illustrations would be on the left, he was the Georgia governor who put Martin Luther King's portrait in the Georgia State Capitol, which was a very uh, daring thing to do. He was pushing very hard on EPA standards for Georgia's own anti-pollution standards uh, for its, its rivers and, and, and forests. So he, he had many things we would think of as being progressive. He denounced the Vietnam War as a racist war and was saying that that uh, Nixon in particular and Henry Kissinger should be uh, roasted on an open spit. He didn't say an open spit, but, you know, and he was a fan of Bob Dylan and the Allman Brothers and everything. But also, uh, Jimmy Carter was the first, ran the first presidential campaign against Gerald Ford after Roe v. Wade. And the fascinating part about that is that both Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford were personally quite anti-abortion. And they were from the camp saying that we personally disapprove of this, but we recognize Roe v. Wade as a way that a country of diverse beliefs can can coexist. And so he was uh, very religious, of course, in a sincere way. So he had some of the totems that we now we think of as conservative, his abortion views, um, his, uh, his patriotism, his military service. Uh, he was a gun owner as part of his, his farming life. In fact, <laughs> as a campaign staffer, I once wrote an article allegedly by him for the NRA journal called My First Kill. <laughs> about his, his days hunting possums. <laughs> so it, it's, uh, so Carter was, um, and, and he had, as well, I'll say one other thing about him, as governor of Georgia, one of his innovations was something called zero-based budgeting. And the idea was you look at every public program and say, do we really need to do this still? How can it be made more efficient? Um, he pushed that hard while also giving speeches about how the uh, the REA, the Rural Electrifi Electrification Administration, had changed his life by bringing electric power to uh, to Plains, Georgia, when he was a little boy and how just it was a before and after. And he became a quite a tribune of racial engagement and, and solidarity. So Carter had a, it was sort of late New Dealism and late civil rightsism of saying, I'm for the civil rights movement. I'm for all the things the New Deal did to liberate and empower people, but let's look harder at what they're doing and let's let's be um, skeptical about some of the regulations, some of the budgeting. Charlie Peters, just to mention briefly, grew up, was born in West Virginia in the mid-1920s. His uh, father was a prominent lawyer there. His entire boyhood was dominated by FDR. Uh, Charlie, even in his mid-90s, can still recite long passages from major FDR speeches because that was uh, his, his, his ideal. He was also was in the army just after World War II. He was injured in an accident, not not in combat. He went to uh, law school um, and, and went to uh, Columbia for for college. I think he went to UVA for law school, and he got into West Virginia politics. You know, he was a state senator in West Virginia in his 30s. He was the state manager for John F. Kennedy's West Virginia primary. Um, running against, uh, when he was running, I don't know who was against, somebody who was, where Catholicism was the issue. Was it Estes Kipoff or I, I don't know, but, but Kennedy had to overcome the anti-Catholic uh, burden of, of that part of the country in that time, and obviously he did. And th then, getting to my point, for the eight years of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, he was a 
sort of deputy administrator in the Peace Corps under Sergeant Shriver and then some successors running the evaluation uh, program where he would hire journalists to go out and see, okay, we're hearing about our great program in Ghana. Why don't you go out there and take a look and see if it's actually any good? And and he became that way quite attuned to the fact that bureaucratic realities mattered and intentions were not enough. You had to talk about execution too. So that is a long way of saying the New Deal idealism of both these people, Carter and Charlie Peters and his acolytes, came together in the late 70s and 1980s by saying, let us pursue these longstanding goals, which we we believe in, in ways that more suit the reality of, of our times. And that's what brought them to their neo, neoliberalism, which is entirely different from the flat earthism of uh, the current uh, privatization uber alles neoliberal people. Yeah. Okay. So there's oh, there's there's tons there. It's just so delightful. Um. So and I want to say. So the first thing to say is. Whenever I have anyone on this show who comes from whatever you want to call it, the sort of left or socialist milieu, but not not an anarchist point of view, they tend to talk about the the New Deal and social democracy. And there's this there's this great yearning for this period. And I'm I'm with them on that. And one of the things I'm very enthusiastic uh, in many ways about our current president, because my theory is he comes from that same place where the New Deal is fundamentally a good, we've sort of, he sort of skipped back past the neoliberal era to the, to the New Deal era. Um, and, and people sort of talk about, again, sorry, these left socialists, whatever we're going to call them, they're, 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 they're very for social democracy and the New Deal and that sort of thing, which I think you've just suggested ways that Jimmy Carter and Charlie Peters are, and I am as well. But during the New Deal era, there were lots of critiques of the New Deal from the right, but the people that we would call anarchists and the new left were very critical of the New Deal for from the left for the reasons that you can think of. It was a massive federal bureaucracy. It was fundamentally conservative in certain ways, like it uh, excluded large groups. The New Deal excluded farm workers and uh, household workers. That was both racist and classist, I think, in a certain way. And there's this, there was this sense, this energy all through the New Deal era from the left, that the New Deal was too big, too sclerotic, had too much regulation, was too exclusive, all this stuff. And in that, in that sense, that's, I mean, this is why, this is why I'm coming at this from the work I'm doing now. Is there, there, there's a sense that these criticisms of the New Deal, which seem unimaginable to us now, after 40 years of the, of the Reagan, you know, the bad version of neoliberalism, the, the Anglo-Hayekian economic model, privatize everything, when you have a democratic president whose big version of healthcare is something that was come, you know, something generated by a Bain consultant, right? If that's if that's what neoliberalism means, obviously it's bad. No one, no one likes it. Definitely no one likes it who has any left-leaning bone in their body. But I think it's great to hear from you the way that there was energy and frustration with aspects of the New Deal and clearly the goal the goal of people like Peters and uh, Carter was to I don't know rejigger the New Deal as opposed to destroy it did get destroyed and I do not want to suggest despite my my joke at the beginning that Jimmy Carter and Charlie Peters destroyed the New Deal that's obviously not what happened yes and I I agree with and follow what you're, you're saying I'll give a couple of illustrations about 
the energy of that era and in ways that sometimes look um, that look complex in retrospect. One other thing I'll say about the, the New Deal, I was talk, <laughs> talking with one of my dear friends who's been an editor of mine for magazine articles for, for decades. And he, we were talking about how to think of this, this, the sweep from the Gilded Age through LBJ, a period you have spent a lot of time uh, thinking about and, and, and writing about. And he was making the, the point that if you think of the early 20th century responses to many of the excesses of the late 19th century, you and going through the, through the New Deal, you have to say that net, they were a big positive. And the stress is on the net. You know, there were the anti-immigration laws and there was the Great Depression and there was, you know, all this carnage of war, et cetera. But there was a sense of the first part of this first half of the 20th century being net a period of reform uh, in the U.S. as opposed to further, uh, you know, the late 1800s, I think you would say the reverse about. The late 1800s were net bad in the U.S. And the early 20th century, I would argue, was net good with a very lot of things in the balance of, of that net uh, st stipulating that. And um, so, so the way this sensibility applied in, in the times of Carter and Peters, again, would be this with this net sense. We're, do, we're going in the right direction, but the wheels are falling off and maybe we're going down a road that's gonna go over a bridge, et cetera, et cetera. One illustration that many of your listeners will have, will have thoughts about is that it's been now, how, however long it was, 50, uh, 45 years um, since Jimmy Carter passed his airline deregulation plan. And it's worth remembering that nobody now can believe what it was like to take an airline flight in those days. Every single route and every single fare had to be approved in Washington by the the, CAB, uh, the Civil Aeronautics uh, Board. It wasn't this business of five minutes later, a fare is twice as much or half as much. The fares were set sort of the way they would do in the Soviet Union. There was a sort of diktat from the, the headquarters. These are the routes, these are the fares. And they were... Um, so that seemed out of sync with a more agile economy. And there was the argument, uh, this argument was made in legislative terms by a young staff assistant to Edward F. Kennedy, Edward, Edward M. Kennedy, named Stephen Breyer. Yeah. Stephen Breyer first came onto the map as an aide to Kennedy, and he was one of the sort of godfathers of this, uh, this um, airline deregul deregulation plan. The other, of course, was Alfred Kahn an economist from, from Cornell, I believe. And I worked, you know, I was Carter's speechwriter then, so I worked closely with Kahn, a little bit less with Breyer. Yes, the same Breyer from the Supreme Court. Um, <laughs> just, just to clarify, uh, in writing speeches about all this, and Alfred Kahn had, he had a New Dealer sensibility himself, but he also had what we think of as a future neoliberal sense of, oh, we could run this better. If, we, mm -hmm. if the market had a, a bigger uh, goal, and now all these decades later, airline travel is objectively horrible. Everybody hates it. It's uh, I, I'm a pilot, but I still hate uh, riding on an airliner, but it is dramatically safer. It's the safest form of transportation mankind has ever developed. In the last 13 years, U.S. airlines have done 10 billion passenger journeys, one passenger, one right in those 10 billion journeys, a total of two people have been killed in accidents, which is like car crashes every minute or something. Um, and, and so it's 
Han had this idea of, oh, this could be better. We'll have the, we'll unleash the creative power of, of the airlines. I think if Khan were still around now, and if Jimmy Carter were thinking about this, they'd say, yes, this was overall a step in the right direction, but good Lord, look at all the things that are horrible about this, um, this market um, minded and more or less monopolistic or certainly oligopolistic um, situation. So that, there was kind of energy for seeing how you could turn the dial and get rid of what might seem like Soviet style or warboard planner regulation that applied to trucking as well, was seen as an anti-Jimmy Hoffa mood also, it applied to home brewing. Any of your listeners, whoever has a craft beer, can thank Jimmy Carter and me for writing the regulations that that uh, freed home brewers from prohibition type controls. And that that was how craft brewing began. So that was sort of the deregulatory um, impulse. For Charlie, it was the idea of trying to, um, in his journalism to have reporters, number one, concentrate on the realities of government, not just the politics, not just how this is going to affect the Iowa caucuses or whatever, but how it actually works. And also the ways in which um, he had a phrase, busting our mental blocks about topic X, whether it was um, whether it was excesses of public sector unions, uh, whether it was uh, ways in which the left should embrace entrepreneurs, uh, small-scale entrepreneurs, whether the tax code should be skewed in favor of small-scale uh, entrepreneurs, etc., whether teachers' unions had their drawbacks in addition to their, their virtues. So that was the energy on both sides. We're going in the right direction, but we could be doing better. Yeah, this is wonderful. So I I can't stress enough, especially for my American listeners. I have a lot of listeners in the UK as well. The the UK was, you know, it it went perhaps even beyond what we would call social democracy to democratic socialism. I mean, parts of the industry were actually run by the government. And, you know, you can call this capitalism, although I would call it anarchism. That that doesn't seem good to me. One one way I mentioned to you, I think before we were recording this uh, Jonathan Ray article about the new Hayek uh, biography. And he said that, he says, one way you can understand Hayek is to say, Hayek says, small is beautiful. And it seems to me, and this this again is where it seems to me like a neoliberal economics and an an anarchist way of thinking about society is is good and they come together. Brewing is perfect. So the governor and senator, John Hickenlooper of Colorado, I'm sure, those of you who are good leftists loathe him for being a neoliberal or or whatever. I mean, I'm sure, et cetera, et cetera. Burn, we all love Bernie Sanders, on and on. But one of Hickenlooper's big commitments, you know, started as a brewer, was to keep the breweries from getting too big in Colorado. And this is something that, you know, those on the right and people who like Hayek seem to have this huge blind spot where they, they very much, they don't want unions to be too big and powerful. They don't want the government to be too big and powerful. So far, so good. I agree with them. Mm. And if corporations become absolutely enormous and can do whatever they want, these people who would say they like Hayek and believe small is beautiful seem to prefer AB InBev to a local microbrewery. And this is where, to me, the energy can come together. And you can say something like, you know, Hickenlooper, who we can describe him as a neoliberal with, with the epithet, but also positively. Yes, small is beautiful. And I heard him on a podcast where he said that was our mission. 
keep the breweries small and the beer would be better. There would be more people involved in the brewing industry. You don't have, you know, the the profiteers skimming off the money. All all of this stuff. This is this is the the neoliberal energy. And if you're listening to this podcast in 2023 and you know, you don't remember the 80s, which I'm sure some of my listeners do, let alone the 60s and 70s, you probably can't understand how regulated and um yeah, I mean, maybe just rotten. Some of these giant, I mean, think about how how rotten the biggest corporations have gotten in this current era and apply that to the biggest unions and certain branches of the government as well. And you can understand the urge to smash and shake things up and let some new life in. I, I agree. I'm going to say something about Hickenlooper and then have one other um uh, connection about unions. So Hickenlooper, uh, I met him first when doing reporting on his brewery, and I've seen him off and on over the years. And there was one time, there was one event where I had, for over a period of two or three days, I was, you know, seated next to him and talked with him. He has the particular condition that you read about sometimes uh, in in books. I forget the the Latinate term for it, but it's where he cannot recognize people's faces. And, you know, that, that's a particular syndrome. And, and it's uh, think how somebody can become a mayor and a governor and a U.S. senator with not being able to recognize uh, people. That, that is a, a sort of force of will. But I agree they, entirely. Yeah, go, go they ahead. Facial aphasia. Is that right? I mean, you just call yes, it face I, blindness is the yes, that works. Yes. So, so face blindness. So that, that made me respect him all the more the way he'd been able to to find ways to to work, work around that. Um, one other thing about Hickenlooper and Brewing, um, Jim Cook, spelled K-O-C-H, was in a way one of the really important innovators in the craft brew movement in the U.S. with with the Boston Brewing, Com Brewing Company, which is Sam Adams Beer. And it's the biggest of the craft brewers, but he still, Cook believes very much in the decentralized, every community having its own brewery model. And he pointed out his father came from Germany to the U.S. in the 1840s to open a brewery in Cincinnati. And that until prohibition in the 1920s, essentially every community in the United States had its own brewery or, or many and had distilleries and had wineries because beer, especially, it couldn't travel. You know, there, there wasn't refrigeration, so you had to make make your own. And so there were thousands of breweries in the U.S. until the 1920s. From the 20s to the 1970s, that number shrank to only about 30 brewing companies in the U.S. It was, it was monopoly of just the most, you know, objectionable kind. It was industrialized brewing. Carter deregulated that for let a thousand flowers bloom um, reasons, not using the Chinese <laughs> resonance of that now, but for, for small is beautiful uh, reasons. And uh, I'm going to mention one other person in this whole realm who is Ralph Nader. Who was another of my so mentors in those I have, days? I had him on the I have him on the list, Jim. So thank you for I, I somehow hadn't snuck in. My Ralph Nader was coming coming from the left, and yet somehow you know somehow he helped the corporations get bigger. Which boy was that? that not that was not what he was after. So Ralph Nader is also still around in his late eighties. He was a very important mentor to me back when I was a teenager, and then years after that. Almost everybody who hears his name now, especially in the United States, associates him with George W. Bush becoming president. <laughs> this was in that election when uh, Ralph was running as a third party candidate. Um, he 
you know, his voters seem to make the difference in Florida and perhaps in, in some other states, too. A number of his former employees, um, including me, urged him publicly a month before the election, don't stop campaigning in Florida, stop campaigning in Wisconsin, stop campaigning in New Hampshire, campaign in New York. You know, campaign in in <laughs> Illinois, campaign in California, all you want. Uh, but he um, uh, he did not uh, go th- go that way. But because that that decision by Ralph Nader looms so large in world history, um, people forget that his original and consistent model has been of nonstop decentralized citizen engagement that everything law should be decided as close to the local level as possible. Businesses should be as local as possible. His parents ran a little diner in their town of Winstead, uh, uh, Connecticut. And so he, he really believes in the engaged citizenry for local action pitch. Um, so so that he's been relatively uh, stable in that and has been asking all along for more corporate supervision for antitrust, for all these other things that I think that you would support too. Sure, but I the, the the place where I wanted to bring you know Ralph Nader up negatively is that he and this you know Charlie Peters mentions in that Washington Monthly piece something like you know big business isn't always bad. I mean, what Nader the the the, the negative argument to make about Nader besides the presidential thing, which is not which is not what I'm talking about. Yeah, is apart the, from that, Mrs. Lincoln. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, the play right uh, is um. He 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 was focused on the the consumer, and our and to a certain way our our regulatory framework for antitrust is perversely drawn from some of Nader's ideas, which we can use you know we can use AB InBev if they can argue oh well when we buy this little brewer, we will drive prices down. And everyone will be happy. It is actually a Nadarian idea that people will say, "Okay, well, we will go ahead approve this, and we can have only one brewer in the world, and that's fine, as long as prices are low." And again, you can see the the left idea behind this, and it has wrought something truly terrible. It, I I understand, and I think here too we have a case of terminology that has shifted and has gone from three-dimensional to, to one-dimensional, which is the whole concept of consumerism. Yeah. Because yeah. Uh, that that in his life and his overall message, Ralph Nader was preaching anything but a <laughs> consumerist approach to life. You should be out there doing things. You should be out there engaged every way you can, making a difference. But somehow he became consumer advocate Ralph Nader when he was trying to talk about auto safety yeah. and having, you know, uh, I wrote some testimony for him once in Congress about uh, about hot dogs, which were then made of God knows what material and wanting some more food safety standards. And they were having them as, you know, the the thin pink torpedoes of death or something like that. <laughs> so it was not it was not just about cheapness, but it became and I think his message was perverted and flattened into this cons- minimum consumer price is the only thing you need to think of. Therefore, Amazon, there should be no yes. stores except Amazon. And yes, so I, I, I think that he would want to rein Amazon in. Oh, precisely. There's no I mean, there's no sense that that's what Nader ever wanted or wants today. But again, when you when you go back and look at this, if you're tracing the the history of how 
how we got to this, you know, terrible place, you can see that Nader's ideas along with Peter's and Carter's deregulation can be seen as as stepping stones on this journey. And that's not not to I'm not as good of a student of Nader as, as as I am. I know Peters and Carter are a little better. I don't think that's fair to them in terms of what certainly not what they set out to do and probably not even what they actually did. And yet it, it has become all part and parcel of this same terrible thing that we that we are dealing with now. Yes. And I think there is a an inevitable challenge that comes up when you read what people were saying in these circumstances of 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, and then apply the circumstances of 50 years later and say, oh, now we see what was wrong with that. And without allowing for the fact that as circumstances changed, these people's views would change too. It's impossible. It's difficult to do that with Carter because he only had four years as president Mm -hmm. and 40 plus as former president. But Nader is still doing things. I get mailings from him every week or so. And he is, he is reaching the main thing he's trying to correct for is the excesses of concentration and economic determinism in the career sense and all of that. And, and Charlie Peters, uh, he has, he wrote a book um, maybe five or six years ago. Probably that means it's 15 years ago. Anyhow, it's called uh, We Do Our Part. It's about how the ethic of the New Deal and World War II era, which might be criticized as excessively state-dominated, et cetera, but it was a time when state domination, especially for waging a world war, was was necessary. How Charlie felt that had a sense of individual um, equity person by person and and community fabric and trying to find ways to do things that were good for people and not just, uh, you know, not just the cheapest. And, you know, the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. That is about how you don't want bankers just squeezing everybody to, to death. So I think that that the point I'm making is that people evolve, situations change. What you would say in the 1970s may, you would say is different about in the, in the 2020s. So these are three excellent examples that you've given of, of, uh, of Charlie and Jimmy Carter and Ralph Nader of starting off a movement and they would correct for its excesses now, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is the case. You, you sent me this article by Longman that said, you know, if we look back at what Charlie Peters was doing. This takes us back to where you started. What he was doing was within a, an understanding that the New Deal context would endure. And so if you look at that famous article, his manifesto that's written in 1982, Re- Reaganism as we know it hadn't truly revved up yet. And to say here in 2023, oh no, it's wrong to criticize the the dominant paradigm. It's wrong to take a, a contrarian approach to your own side. You're certainly not going to hear me. I mean, the, the 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 word anarchist gets adopted by Proudhon precisely for this reason because it's 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 a way of saying, hey, you know what? Everyone agrees that anarchy is bad, and I'm going to see if I can make a case for it. It's a way of being contrarian and the anarchists have traditionally served that role on the 
on the left. I mean, this is another way that I'm going to say that they they have something in common with neoliberalism. It's it's the anarchist who stands up and says, no, actually, there's problems with the social democracy or democratic socialism that you are raising. And the people who we could see now, I mean, these three are, are three good ones, I think, Peters, Nader, and Carter, as, you know, having been in bed with and helped create the the terrible economic situation now, laissez-faire, corporations, Uber, Uber, all is. I don't even like calling it capitalism. It's certainly, I mean, in your article, you mentioned Adam Smith a lot, but I, I always, I mean, I mentioned every time I can, Adam Smith did not like corporations. He thought any corporation that was big was no good. And he said that um, picking stocks was not a valuable part of capitalism and the people whose job it was to pick stocks should not be rewarded financially. So it's hard to make a case that Adam Smith, uh, I think Adam Smith would have liked Hickenlooper's breweries a lot more than these forces that have been unleashed. And in some ways we just need to say, hey, these, these people, <laughs> Ralph Nader did not create uh, the the current consumerist model of antitrust, which is another way of saying pro-trust, even if his ideas have been drafted, drafted in service of this pro-monopolistic viewpoint. Yes, and another way to, to establish the connection these three people, and I may mention another one in a minute, had of assuming the values of the, the fundamental value that the New Deal would, would persevere, is that all of them opposed Ronald Reagan? You know, Jimmy <laughs> Carter actually ran against him, <laughs> and, and, and that that um, uh, you know, the Washington Monthly was all through the 1980s was was just warning against these uh, tax cuts uh, that were just so skewed towards the people who already had. Um, and, and it's important to say one other thing for people who, like most of humanity, were not alive alive at that time. Um, the uh, the real destruction, I think, of of the Reagan and then George W. Bush eras and then Trump was um, making making taxation seem like an objective evil, uh, and, and and that you know during the Eisenhower era, the, the highest marginal tax rate was in the ninety percentile, and and Kennedy raised it, yeah, you know, I mean lowered it below that, but it still was very very much higher during uh, the time that shaped the, these people, and so they thought you wouldn't just cut taxes in a way that necessitated other that, that empowered already powerful people and that uh, meant that other kind of uh, other programs had to be cut back except the, the military so they all assumed there would be a higher tax uh level than than there was um well, let's have a marker to talk about a man named tom gagan uh, okay this just, is not this is not a name i know go ahead okay so Tom Gagan is a dear friend of mine. It's Thomas, and his last name is Gagan, G-E-O-G-H-E-G-A-N. His day job is he's a lawyer in Chicago, and he's now in his early 70s, I'd say, a contemporary of mine. And his legal work there has all been for unions that are being dismantled by steel companies or whatever else. He's been a very, a tribune of the little person in Chicago and for the organization, organizations that help nurses or, or whatever. But he came, he came to prominence with a book probably in the late 1980s called Which Side Are You On? And oh, it I was, do, I do know yeah, this book. Okay. It was about how he as a union man was uncomfortable with a lot of the excesses 
of the unions of that day. Uh, you know, Jimmy Hoffa being an extreme example, but lots of others that were corrupt and self-dealing and were uh, just kind of crony capitalism in a, in a different form. And so, you know, Tom, again, he spent his entire life representing unions. And a generation ago, he said, we need to understand how unions can be better. And uh, so, so that's in the same spirit. And he's still out there. He actually filed a lawsuit uh, in May of 2023 asking that the debt ceiling, the preposterous debt ceiling showdown be um, just ruled unconstitutional because it would force the president to uh, carry out his duties to uh, to honor the national debt. So he's, he's still on the case. <laughs> yeah, I can again, um, Again, I don't know if anyone, if anyone else is convinced at all at the parallels that I'm drawing. But this was this was the role of the of the anarchists and especially the wobblies all throughout the organized labor movement was to stand up and say, "No, this is getting too big. This is getting too corrupt. The unions are resembling the the corporations. That sort of thing." To we are experiencing, or we seem to be experiencing. A, a rise in pro-union sentiment in the United States, which I hope everyone knows I could not be more happy about. But you can look back at certain eras of the unions and see there's not a big difference between them and the big corporations. This this takes us back to small is beautiful. And then obviously, you know, they 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 smashed the wobblies going back to the first half of the 20th century which you know there's probably lots more to say about that they smashed the wobblies who who knows what would have come i mean they were the most powerful force of anarchism that ever existed at least in the united states and you know you can say that that's what caesar chavez was out to do also he was a union leader who was outside of the union mainstream and then there were feminist critiques of caesar chavez as well and this is the this is the game we have to play constantly, this relentless self-critique of our side. And um, and also, I guess, the one of the lessons of neoliberalism is that we need to be, at the same time, careful that we're not empowering the other side. Although I I tend to land on the side of self-critique of, of our own side at at all costs. And this is why, this is one of the reasons why I'm not going to blame Jimmy Carter for, uh, for Ronald Reagan. That does seem horrifically, <laughs> horrifically unfair. And, and just because I worked for him, I'll add the Philip that um, Carter has always believed that it were, if it were not for the disastrous Iranian rescue mission, um, that uh, that he would have beaten Reagan. And you can make that case. The election seemed very close until the end. In retrospect, because Reagan was a landslide two-term winner, we say, oh, of course, naturally he was yeah. going to win. But it, but it was much closer in, in real time. And Reagan was viewed with much greater skepticism before he became president than even he was after he became, became president. But it, it's... Um, and, and my point just in in saying this is that Carter was doing everything he could to stop this uh, approach towards just a more money minded um, uh, view of, of governing. So that, that's all I'm adding, that, that it was a closer thing than than it seems in retrospect. Yeah. And I, you know, I almost brought that up in my initial gloss of the whole of the whole situation is the Carter presidency. You does does it does seem to have been external forces perhaps that derailed the Carter presidency and then boy will we having a very, very different conversation. Um I could 
keep doing this for a while, but it does seem to me like we're maybe coming to a natural point of conclusion if it seems that way to you. Um, did you, was it the first half of the 20th century that you wanted to ask me about? Is that what you were yes. thinking of? So I'm going to put down two markers. One is, is if we can continue this conversation in a week or two or whatever would be the natural, uh, natural uh, thinking period, because I, I really enjoy very much hearing from you the way you're thinking about this. And these are issues on my mind. Yes, the where I turn to you in your professor mode is this. Um, it seems evident to me the parallels between what was wrong in the original Gilded Age and what is wrong now in our septic Gilded Age. And our, That's our where I started. That's like yes. the first paragraph of my dissertation. Yes. So, sorry. Go, go yes. on. And so, so th those we can we can stipulate all the ways in which th there are parallels. And then if we look at the the decades after, uh, you know, the, in the early first half of the 20th century, let's say, again, I would argue on net there were many reforms in response to, to those. Is what is the tutelage that can be brought to the first half of the 21st century from the first half of the 20, 20th century? This is a topic for another episode, I think. I think. I Believe Good. me, I think about this all the time. So we can say this, um, and this can hopefully serve as a coda to this. So the answer, Jim, the, the short answer in terms of what was happening in the first half of the 20th century is this much beloved and misunderstood word, democracy. So there was energy behind democracy in that period that I personally do not see today with the people who would call themselves progressives. It seems to me that the progressive mode, and, and this is where I came to anarchism in the 21st century with my frustration with progressives, is a inside the beltway policy model. And the idea is, and this is what you and I talked about the first time you were on the show, the idea is if the smart people in the center can get it right, the problems can be solved in a technocratic way. And if you look at the New Deal, there were more dem there were technocrats working with FDR, but there were more Democrats than there were technocrats. To a certain extent, the failure of Woodrow Wilson's presidency. I mean, it's lots of things. It's World War One. Yeah. It's white supremacy but it's also technocracy and arguably yeah. the failure of John Dewey's entire project yeah. came down. John Dewey tried to steer the progressive educational movement that he had started based on the ideas of democracy. Later in his life, he realized, oh no, what people have taken from this is that we should have standards that are universally applied. And Dewey's entire career becomes to me, kind of like we've discussed with these other figures, a grotesque tragedy in that the ideas that he advocated for and the system that he is known as the father of are in fact diametrically opposed. So yeah, let's, let, let's talk about that if, that if if that sounds good to you. Um, I look forward to that. So thanks for doing what you're doing and helping people think about these issues and giving me a chance to learn from you about them.
Oh, well, I mean, uh, I don't, I, I guess I'll, I guess I'll say you're welcome, but I want to say thank you so much, Jim, for everything you've done. And to, I, 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 there's no one else in the world, Jim, in the world who could have had this conversation with me with this combination of personal knowledge, historical knowledge, and, and acumen. So thank, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, I'm honored and I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you, Jim. <laughs>